You're listening to a DM podcast. All right, welcome back to Behind the Podcast with Jules and Stocks. Today, Stocks and I went behind the podcast with Kate McClymont, investigative journalist and host of the wildly popular podcast, Liar Liar, Melissa Kadich and the Missing Millions. No doubt if you've ever opened a paper, you've noticed Kate's face in there delving into Australia's underworld. But this is her first foray into podcasting outside of being a guest. Stocks, what did you think? Even though it's sort of the love child of Fairfax Media, it is a classic podcast. It's They did it for fun. Uh, they did it because they wanted to do it. And there was a bit of luck in how it all came together. And it, it works, I think, because Kate is her authentic self in there, which is probably her authentic self is a bit of a surprise to many people who've just read her takedowns of the Canterbury Bulldogs or Eddie O'Bead or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you've certainly seen her written word. I think it's about time you hear the voice. And why don't we hand over to that very voice? Kate, can you tell us a bit about the podcast? So Liar Liar, the Melissa Caddick and the Missing Millions was a podcast that was done with the Sydney Morning Herald and with 60 Minutes. So we're both uh, Channel 9 outlets and it's the first one that we've done together. And initially I was sort of a little bit reluctant because I thought it's been such a well-publicised story that maybe um, there'd been too much publicity about Melissa Caddick, so would people really be interested? And I have to say I have been completely stunned about how this case has completely gripped people. Like, I still get people coming up to me and saying, so do you think she's alive? And so for listeners who don't know about Melissa Paddock, she was a 49-year-old woman from Sydney's eastern suburbs. And within hours of the corporate regulator raiding her house in November 2020, she disappeared. And it's the aftermath of, uh, you know, that disappearance that has really got people captivated. And and, and what she was doing, because she was running a Ponzi scheme and she had stolen more than $22 million of not just other people's money, these were her friends and her family. I think this is what has really... You know, set it on a, a different level. It's not stealing money from strangers, which is bad. This is depriving your best friends of their entire life savings. Yeah, it's certainly captured the attention of the, the broader public. Um, you're no stranger to this kind of investigation yourself. You've certainly got a, a, a very well-documented career, highly celebrated, highly awarded. How Do you want to tell us a bit about your background for those of you, uh, for our listeners who might be specific audio files and maybe don't read the papers too much? Sure. Um, Yes, I'm an investigative journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald. And my beat, you know, as it has been for the last 30 or so years is uncovering crime and corruption. You know, that's what I do. And it's, it's what I love doing. And the funny thing about this Melissa Caddick case was that I only stumbled upon it by complete chance. I was looking at a case of insider trading and um, search warrants had been executed at a businessman's house. So I wanted to know about this, so I rang up the federal police who executes the warrants on behalf of the corporate watchdog ASIC. And they said to me, hang on, do you mean the search warrants in 
Wollongong Road or in Wallaroy Road? And of course, I was looking at the latter. And I said, well, who's, who's at the first one? And they went, oh, I don't know, some woman called Melissa Caddick. And at that stage, there had been no news, nothing about search warrants. And for a little while, I thought the insider trader might have been having an affair with Melissa Caddick. But in fact, there was no relation whatsoever. So, um, you know, you just do the normal tricks of the trade as an investigative journalist. The first thing you do is you say, right, okay, where does she live? What companies does she have? Um, what companies has she has she been involved in? You look at her employment history, but there was there was virtually nothing. There was something from I don't know ten years ago about her as a financial advisor, and she was living in a six point two million dollar house in um, uh, Dover Heights. Yeah, and her partner is a hairdresser, so. I couldn't initially see why was this woman of such interest to the corporate watchdog that they'd actually gone to a judge to get warrants in order to, um, you know, execute warrants on her house. And it wasn't until her husband and her brother, her husband is Anthony Coletti, and as I said, he's a, uh, a musician um, hairdresser, bit of a jack of all trades, and her brother um, uh, Adam, Adam Grimley, they appeared at the Bondi police station for a missing persons report. And then suddenly you think, oh, okay, now we've got something interesting. We've got a raid and now we've got a disappearance. And it was the fact of you know, just looking back, it was the fact that her husband was saying, um, Melissa, come home. You haven't done anything wrong. You're not in trouble. And you think to yourself, hang on, you've just had your place raided by ASIC. I don't think there's not any trouble going on here. Because obviously, you know, you're from a, a print background. What about this story made it a bit different for you where you thought, okay, I want to enlist some other people here or maybe there's a different way to, to break this down? been most interesting to me about this whole process is of course I've only been interviewed for podcasts I've never actually done one and I had quite a few book offers and I just sort of thought oh look I'm not sure that I want to do that and then um, I ran into Tom Steinfort from 60 Minutes and he'd done the Melissa Caddick story for 60 Minutes so we just sort of said hey you know why don't we do a podcast on this so the first day we have a meeting, we, we do a, a rough record of our first episode and the next day Melissa Caddick's foot washes up on Bournder Beach <laughs> down on the south coast of New South Wales. So we're talking about February 2021. Tom and I say to each other, well, that's it, our podcast's over. You know, she's washed up. You know, a little bit of hers washed up. She's obviously dead, which is funny because the writers of the Channel 9 drama, you know, the underbelly drama that that did the Melissa Caddick, you know, the vanishing, they said, oh, Kate, no, the foot washing up is when we knew we had a drama. 
So it was interesting, you know, the, the, just the different reactions. And I, of course, was totally wrong. So, and I just hadn't realised that um, the washing up of Melissa Caddick's partial remains would create the most intense interest in, you know, had she chopped off her own foot? Had she planted it down on the south coast? This, you know, crazy mystery. But, um, and I, I must say, I didn't realise how much work is involved in a podcast. <laughs> it's very interesting that you say that. This is very different to a traditional true crime podcast where if you take something like A Teacher's Pet, which we've been talking about recently, is a single host, very dry, uh, coming down and looking at an old case and running through the pieces of it. Whereas this was very a live case. It seems like there was a lot of serendipity in it all happening as it did. And then it's very much seems to have that television influence in the way it's delivered. It's two hosts. It's almost more towards a E! News style than it is to a true crime documentary in a good way. It's very fun. It's uh, salacious. Um, and I think people get to see a different side of you from what they might know if they just know you as a written journalist. Uh, they don't know me very well. <laughs> in fact, the, um, the producers had to keep saying, you can't say that. <laughs> this is not a joke. <laughs> so, but it, and it was really fun doing it with Tom because Tom obviously has um, skills that I don't have. I'm not a broadcaster. As you've said, I'm a print journalist. And often I'd listen back and I'd think, oh, you just sound so um, stilted. Whereas Tom had a much better knack of, um, because, you know, as you know, each episode was, you know, 35 to 45 minutes long. And that's about 8,000 words. So you have to have a script, you know, so you have to have a narrative, you have to know where you're going. But trying to sound fresh and natural, I think that was one of the things that I, I suddenly had a complete appreciation for people like yourselves who do this a lot. It's interesting, in preparation for this podcast, we were talking about the delivery of yourself and Tom, and we actually liked your delivery better. As good as he is, he's used to talking in short, say, 45 to 90 second grabs for television. Uh, whereas a podcast, with this podcast, you're talking, as you said, for often minutes at a time. And we felt that your delivery was much more natural and much more of a podcast type of voice. Oh, I, I, won't tell, I won't tell Tom that. <laughs> I was say, yeah, he's not going to listen to this, is he? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure in the 60 Minutes concept, he blows everyone out of the water. But it was very interesting that actually we felt that your your delivery was much uh, much more podcast authentic than his, and oh, that's wow. nothing on him. <laughs> well, look, who would know? Just the experience of doing it was so enjoyable because you know with print stories, you know you do your story and you move on, and even more so with sixty minutes, you you know you do your program, but this enables you to to live and to breathe something and to go into such depth and also just being able to use other people's voices and to hear what they have to say rather than, you know, in a, a, a print version where it just says, you know, she sobbed as she said. And when you actually hear a voice, you know, the uncertainty or the fearfulness or just the sadness, it's... Um, you know, podcasts have that immediacy, certainly, that print doesn't have. 
So tell us a bit about the timeline of this all coming together because you talked about sort of around February or when the, the, the foot washed up, that sort of being the moment where you, you know, you're able to then launch off and, and get this going. The show itself came out in April. So it's a pretty short window to pull something like this together and the amount of investigation I'm sure you're used to doing and certainly within you know, the world of, of books and, and, and Tom's background in 60 Minutes. Did you kind of put together a bit of a timeline on how many episodes you'd like this to be, how long you kind of thought that they might be, what the sort of, you know, overarching story might be. And, and did you have a, also a bit of a, an idea about, you know, do we leave some things open because this is an open investigation and things are unfolding all the time? Is a foot today? Might be a hand tomorrow? Might be something else? <laughs> well, um, I started working on it, um, you know, pretty much full time in November. So I've been working on it for about four months and, you know, Tom and Tracy Hannaford and Michael Evans had also been doing work on it. So we had done a, uh, a script outline and within each script was what we hoped to cover in, you know, that day's episode. But it is that thing, the, the structure, then you think, well, hold on, is that giving too much away? And for instance... The, the finding of the foot, we thought, okay, this is a, a local audience. People will know about the finding of the foot. But for other people, do we not give that away early on? Do you allow the story to tell itself? You know, trying to, you know, work out for yourself how much do people know and how much do you just try to take them on a journey of, and, and in the next episode we will learn X, Y, Z. So... That was really interesting. And you do find sometimes you've just got too much and you have to move it into another episode. Or, or again, I would become bogged down on something that I would think was so interesting and then I'd give it to the others and they'd go, uh, no, no, Kate, no, no, you're getting off track. So I'm the one that would always go on little diversions <laughs> down, you know, trails that other people said uh, had to rein me back in again. When you have something like this, I suppose, with your background as well and, and your notoriety, I think for a lot of po- podcasters, it might be their first time, you know, out there in the public investigating things and, and, you know, bringing people in together. I would imagine that with the sort of work that you've done in the past, if someone gets an email or a call from you, it could maybe be a little bit off-putting for them at first and thinking, oh, shit, have I done something? Or, or who's done something? Or what's going on here? I know. I, I, and then, like, the kind of voices that you want to include of, of the people who have either been, you know, affected or have been a part of the, the, the story themselves. Well, it was, it was a bit um, sad that we didn't get um, any of the immediate family or Anthony Coletti, Melissa's husband, or indeed uh, Melissa's first wife, uh, first, sorry, husband, um, Anthony Caddick. So, but it, it was interesting persuading other people to come on. And I think one of the most important people came on only after hearing the the other episodes. And that was um, Anne, who is Kate Horn's 78-year-old mother. And Kate Horn, of course, was Melissa Caddick's friend from preschool had been her best friend her entire life and also her first victim and Kate and her extended family lost about 10 million dollars and we're talking about somebody 
you know, Kate was a single mother, a nurse who worked night shifts to make enough to keep her family afloat. Here is Melissa doing this to somebody she knew was doing it tough, but she still did it. And then to get Kate Horn's mother on, just to say, I'm now 78, I'm getting towards the end of my life. My husband, my late husband and I have worked so hard and here we were thinking that we were well off and now I've lost everything. You know, I'm about to lose the house I've lived in for 50 years. When I go to the grocery, you know, to do the grocery shopping, I have to think to myself, can I afford that? And I just think hearing somebody describe that because it's it's hard to put into words, um, you know, how feeling destitute when you haven't got any capacity at the end of your life to earn money again. It's just horrible. Mm, it's a generational crime. It really is. On the subject of, I mean, I don't want, we don't want to grill you on whether Melissa Caddick's dead or not, but what is the actual legal status of her situation? Has she been pronounced dead? Was that something that the coronial inquest will go into? And then I guess how does this impact how you approach the legalities of defamation and etc. When you're when you're dealing with this podcast, look, it is it is one of those things that defamation is always in the back of your mind. But we had to make it quite clear that um, her husband Anthony Coletti was not a suspect. He was not aware of her crimes. With Melissa herself, you can't defame the dead. So there was one. I, I don't mean to say advantage. That sounds you know, uh, not the appropriate use of words, but it is easier when your main villain is no longer around to send off those defamation threats. But the, I think that there will be more of a conclusion come September when there will be um, what's scheduled to be a two-week coronial inquest. And that will go into whether or not there was enough material to determine um, how the foot became separated from the rest of the body. They've already done DNA match, so they know that whatever remains were in that shoe that washed up, they did belong to Melissa Caddick. But how the shoe became separated from the rest of the body, hopefully a forensic pathologist will be able to provide some answers for that. Right, so you did have a lot more license then, I guess, uh, to really go at it and, and that really does come through in the podcast where you are using some really fun language talking about the you know very TV style the sort of crime of the century and the calling them uh, I just want to get exactly the right word here it's shysters and, and language like that which seems to have a, be having a lot of fun that you might not I guess be able to get away with in a, other situations where it's not so much this balanced journalistic reporting you're actually able to go really and really have a lot of fun with it which you both do there is a question coming at the end of this. I guess with yourself, everyone has a reputation of Kate McClymont. If the words, the sentence Kate McClymont is investigating you is one of the scariest words, I think, for anyone who's at all even dodgy adjacent would ever want to hear. And yet in this podcast, you come across as such a fun, such a, it's such a fun podcast the way you deliver it. Um, really enjoy that. Was that, I mean, that's something that's inside of you, but was that a conscious decision you made to go that way or did you just, just the way it went? No, it's just the way it went. And look, anyone who knows me knows I'm an idiot. And um, I might come across as a very competent investigative journalist, but 
oh my goodness, I just, oh, I can just do the most ridiculously incompetent things. And so. The listeners won't know that in the video behind Kate, her cupboard just opened and a whole bunch of awards just tumbled out. Very funny. <laughs> you can only be what you are, really. In And I guess storytelling is, like, even when you do it in print, you try to take people with you on a journey. You have to make it palatable for people. And I think possibly a podcast is no different in that, you know, you want to make it interesting. And also there are so many humorous moments in, you know, even in the most serious of crimes. And, you know, I love stupid criminals and I'm not saying there were stupid criminals involved in this, but I, I do, I do love them. And, and one of the things that I loved most about this was that we had the joy of Anthony Coletti and his musical talents and the fact that um, I don't know whether I've ever come across a person who has had an AVO sort against him for singing to investigators. <laughs> and um, Tom and I have recently found ourselves the subject of Anthony Coletti's latest, you know, musical endeavours. Have serenaded you? Or? <laughs> oh, well, no, the thing that really annoys me is that in his song, I'm Kate the Hag that likes to brag, and Tom is Fabio, you know, some good-looking crooner, and I'm Kate the Hag. I mean, how sexist. <laughs> good tune other than that. Just the, the lyrics are a little bit off, I think, or certainly the imbalance. I think so. <laughs> when it came down to the production, I guess this is sort of the dream love child of Peter Costello's uh, Fairfax Nine group world where you've got uh, a podcast which feeds into the articles that are coming out. Uh, it's got a 60-minute story, an underbelly series. I mean, this is sort of everything multimedia coming together, all these different media coming together from within the, within the Fairfax group. But who was driving, I guess, the podcast production? Was that a 60-minute side of the game or...? No, no, that was um, that was another arm of the organisation. That was um, Dave McMillan, who is head of um, audio at the Sydney Morning Herald. So he was the one driving the production values, and it was it was one of the the I think the first sort of collaborations where it was all a bit new to all of us. Um, it wasn't any of our bosses, you know, pushing us together. It was more look, I think this could be fun. Why don't we do it? I didn't realise how much time it would take. I just had no idea. But um, And I just think it's interesting, like doing a book um, would be a similar amount of work, similar amount of words. And with a book, you're, if you have a bestseller in Australia, that's 30,000. Like it's not big. And the podcast has had three and a half million downloads to date. And I just think it shows the, the changing way in which people um, mix, I think it's both, you know, entertainment and knowledge. And I love podcasts myself. Uh, and I find that I listen to them when I walk the dog, when I drive the car. And they're at a, a suitable bite-size amount of time and you can then you know go on to the next bit tomorrow or you can binge so I just think that the podcasts are just such a wonderful uh, medium such an enjoyable medium 
Does this has this wet your appetite for to do more of them? I mean, is this something you'd like to do as stories unfold? Just sort of view these things through the lens of either okay, well, this might make a better article, or it might make a better podcast, or a combination of the two. I mean, there's quite a a bit that you can do, sort of cross pollinating, I suppose, between the different mediums that you work within. Look, I I think so, but um, again, it does take you away from your normal job quite a lot. And I keep having people pestering me saying, you know, this is, you know, (laughs) so-and-so is doing this in the criminal world and -and so-and-so is doing that and we need you to look at this and we need you to look at that. So I think my normal criminals are calling for a bit more (laughs) scrutiny. (laughs) Not them personally. They're not calling for it, but... (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, no. Some of their rivals, Mike. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're going to have the tip-offs for some really, really long-form podcasts coming up very soon from some dubious criminal underworld figures just trying to get people off the way from their own scent. <laughs> get rid of the competition. That's it. <laughs> Talk to us about the the uh, audience that it's received and, and what you kind of had in mind when you first uh, started down this route compared to kind of how it's evolved and, and the kind of people that you're hearing from about the show. I mean, I imagine... This is probably beyond what you were expecting in terms of uh, listenership. I think it's done pretty damn well. Oh, look, I wasn't expecting anything like this. And as I said to you, um, I didn't know whether the story was so well known that people would think, oh, yeah, look, I already know what happens in that story. So that has surprised me a bit. And it's interesting that um, there's... Younger audience absolutely love this story, and I don't know whether they love podcasts in general, whether they're big users. You two would know more about that than me, but um, the, there's been a very, um, you know, huge young demographic. But we've had emails from people listening to it overseas. Um, yeah, so it's been fascinating just to see that. And that true crime space, I think, like, you know, generally audiences have a bit of a. a a love affair with the macabre really and this is one where you know for the reasons we mentioned before for things like defamation just the kind of characters that were involved there's a real way that you can sort of bring this to life through audio and i think you've definitely done that the younger generation is the holy grail for podcasters right now and you're definitely tapping into that i think there's also something just about there is a 24-hour news cycle so when i listened to the podcast i knew probably 50 to 60 percent of it but i couldn't remember most of it and just not actually spending time to reflect on something when it happens unless something happens and you talk about to your friends or you go to a dinner party and it comes up as a long conversation it just kind of slips in and the next thing rolls through um so i think it's really lovely to one of these bigger more salacious stories be able to actually sit back and indulge in eight hours of content on it and also you know some of the things that i found really interesting were scientific things for example there was um one episode that we did that we looked up we looked at the strange phenomenon of uh, the canadian feet the 21 feet that washed up in canada and the scientific studies which showed that the advent of the modern sneaker was protecting the foot so you know when you when you do unfortunately meet with a sticky end in the water your body is skeletonized within three days but the foot is protected and floats so just even things like that like learning new things yourself you know i found really interesting 
That's why you buy ASIC gels over Toms, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you want like a nice organic shoe that's going to break down in water as well? And not yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't mind my foot living on after me. <laughs> <laughs> but also, the, 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 the bizarre things of Anthony Coletti keeping the cremated remains of his wife's foot in an ASIC shoe box. Sometimes you think, you can't make this up. Yeah. Yeah, and she would probably, if she is no longer with us, be horrified to know that her remains have been put in an ASIC shoebox rather than. Oh, there is a nice, a there's Gucci. a nice box inside the ASIC. <laughs> <laughs> but just, I mean, but also there was just the, just some weird, funny things. For example, um, when um, you know, one of Melissa's last functions that she went to was at Kate Horn's 50th birthday party, and she's wearing what I thought this rather hideous Dolce and Cabana get um, dress that had big sparkling sort of diamonds on it. Anyway, so when Anthony Coletti was showing Channel Seven through the house, there's the empty wardrobe, Asik has saved all her beautiful belongings, her you know Dior dresses, her shoes, her handbags. Hanging up there, sad and lonely, <laughs> was the Dolce and Gabbana dress. And I thought, oh my god, even Asik thinks that's too ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like two and a half thousand dollars worth. Ridiculous, yeah. ridiculous. You mentioned the role of luck, I guess, in this podcast when you talked about the, I guess, the luck that you uh, were told about this investigation by chance, uh, the coming together in the work cafe for this to happen, the, the shoe floating in at an opportune moment. How much luck is there in this type of investigation for you normally? Oh, look, a lot, an absolute lot. But you can, you know, you can make your own luck as well. And it's one of those things that um, you have to put the hard yards in. You have to ring every single person that you can possibly think of. You have to ring their cousins. You have to contact them on LinkedIn. You have to get onto them on Facebook. Um, so the more work you do, the more results you get. And, you know, you also get some, you know, some bad luck, as in, um, you know, there was a best friend of Melissa Caddick's that she had a major falling out with and she never returned any of our calls or contacted us. And the same with Melissa Caddick's first husband. So, you know, you have to do with, you know, what you've got really. But the more work you put in, you know, the better the results are. I, I, you know, I presume that's the, I, I, sorry. I presume that's the same with most things. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, look. There's no doubt you're putting all the hard work in. I mean, it was lovely to just get a slither of insights into your process with some of the emails that you got to read out. I approached so and so, da 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 da, and they declined. And I was thinking, God, that email would have put the fear of God into me, <laughs> and I would have been straight <laughs> to my lawyers, <laughs> even if I'd done nothing wrong. <laughs> oh no, but you do have to say. I, I often. Um, because when I ring people up, I can sometimes hear that catch in their throat. <laughs> and I try as quickly as I can to say, I'm hoping you might be able to help me. Or I'm hoping I can pick your brain. Just so that people go, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, after me, personally. Although sometimes you are. And that's not so good. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose this isn't over yet, really, in, in terms of the way that the story is unfolding. You did mention the Colonial Inquest that's coming up later in the year. Does that mean that there's more to come still on the podcast beyond the 10 episodes that you've done and, and maybe there's a kind of uh, an epilogue? I think there's definitely an epilogue and I think we'll put the, um, the Colonial Inquest and also the disposal 
of the assets, like the sale of the house in Dover Heights. And at the moment, the parents are still waging a battle to keep the apartment that Melissa bought for her. And sadly, they gave her a million dollars thinking that it was going to reduce the mortgage. But in fact, she bought a $590,000 diamond ring, spent it on private jets and other lifestyle expenses. So there's a bit of a battle going on there as to whether the parents should be in the same boat as all the other victims or should they get uh, special treatment. So we'll answer those questions hopefully in the epilogue. Look, I think most of Australia is probably looking forward to hearing that and, and seeing the way that this does all unfold and hopefully, you know, some of the people who are affected get some recourse as well. In the meantime, I mean, uh, there's no shortage of things that you need to do and, and follow up with and investigate yourself. Do you find time to listen to a few podcasts while you're sort of in between jobs? And do you have a couple of recommendations for people of, of things that either just helped you kind of craft an idea of how you wanted this show to come out or just things that you just enjoy that people might not expect? Things for the dog walk. Yeah. Um, oh, look, I've listened to some absolutely fabulous ones. And I, I do like the New York Times, the Daily to pop in and out of and um, This American Life. But also some of the best ones were, um, I'm just trying to think who did it, but it's now been made, um, well, this is what I think is interesting, that podcasts are now prompting films. And The Dropout uh, about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos was a fantastic podcast, as was the one on Watergate. And I'm just trying to think who did that. You might be able to prompt me, which is now a film starring Julia Roberts. And it was such an interesting podcast. Um, I think Matt Bevan's uh, Russia, if you're listening, I thought that was like really good. And there've been some fantastic ones, like um, you know the Doctor Death one with the um, you know the crazy orthopedic surgeon, and even just the early ones. Um, but that, one thing that interests me at the moment is there does seem to be a resurgence in fraud. In, in swindlers, you know, the, the Tinder swindler. And um, so I, I just don't know whether it's a genre that's of interest to people at the moment and we'll move back to our serial killers before yeah. we know it. <laughs> oh, I do love a good swindler. And that one you were referring to, I believe, was Gaslit. Yes. It, um, but I don't know whether that's what it was called. It was, and it, it just looked at really interesting parts of uh, Watergate. We all know Watergate as, as um, um, I was going to say, um, what's their names? Um, Woodward and Bernstein. But this had just really interesting characters around the sides of that. And I think this is the fantastic thing about podcasts is that you get to listen to stories and to delve into things in a way that is so interesting and captivating and it's all while you're out walking the dog yeah that's right well i mean look the final thing we do like to ask is if you've got any advice for other podcasters but i mean you know podcasters people who want to get into investigative journalism any of the kind of things that you touch on in your career um you know just a couple of little bits would be much appreciated look i think that at the essence of it is a story and it's, um, it's finding something that other people 
will find interesting. And I guess good storytellers can make anything interesting. But it's that thing where you have to capture people's imagination and also, you know, get them hooked so that they will keep following a story. I just thought um, Hedley Thomas's The Teacher's Pet was so interesting because and new people would come forward um, from episode to episode. Oh, the other great podcast was Greg Bearup's Where the Hell is Hamish? Yes. Or Who the Hell, Who the hell is Hamish? And I think actually being part of a journey as it unfolds, Angus Griggs, the sure thing that he did on the Insider Traders, that was also great because it was just a sliver of a story. But when you hear the, the background and when you hear the impact on people's families and, and people's journeys, it's just such a, an interesting way of storytelling. And, and I just, I love podcasts. Fantastic. As do we. Yeah. yeah. And I think the downloads have been a testament to how much Australia has loved your podcast. So we want to thank you very much for coming on and being on our humble little one. It's much appreciated indeed. No, well, I feel like I'm speaking to experts. So thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> thank you, Kate. Really appreciate it.